President Donald Trump, former Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, and race-baiting think tanks like the Heritage Foundation use the myth of voter fraud to justify laws and tactics that make it more difficult to vote. Research and court records show voter fraud is extraordinarily rare, but Kobach and Trump have influenced public opinion by frequently repeating debunked claims. I'm Sherman Smith, the editor-in-chief of the Kansas Reflector, and today's podcast guests include Scott Moore, a Mission Hills resident who served as plaintiff in the lawsuit against Kobach over his use of the Interstate Voter Registration Crosscheck Program. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Sean Morales-Doyle, Deputy Director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Voting Rights and Elections Program. Kobach's use of the cross-check program led to a security breach of sensitive voter information for more than 944 other Kansans. I asked Moore what it was like to take on Kobach. He was such a loud and uh, an annoying pr- proponent of all of this that, uh, you know, Anita and I have talked a lot about this. I think he just, and, and, you know, the ACLU is, is constantly uh, monitoring him and, and, you know, trying to correct what he says publicly that's wrong. And I think once he kind of, once he got out of office, it became a little, you know, I'm with you, it became a little less visible. So, uh, but but now... Mm-hmm. Here we are in 2020, and President Trump is is sounding the drumbeat of you know that there's going to be this is going to be the biggest fraud in election mm-hmm. history, and, and it, it 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 makes me ill every time I see the tweets, you know, and they're almost mm-hmm. daily from him. So it it's concerning to me too that I think a number of people have just kind of accepted this message that they heard for so long that this this problem of illegal voters exists. Uh, and, and they just accepted it as true, and it became the basis for a number of laws and efforts. The, mm-hmm. In Kansas, it was DPOC, but also the, the signature-matching laws that have popped up in a couple of states in addition to Kansas, um, all the other things that were included in that uh, law that, that Kobach spearheaded, and which I should note that Laura Kelly voted for as a senator, um, and voter ID laws, but also this use of cross-check to kind of maniacally go after people, even though it was wildly inaccurate. And, yes. and you got caught in the, the collateral <laughs> the damage cross, of that. The crossfire, so to speak. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, the thing is, Sherman, I never would have had any idea that I was on that list, that I was being looked at, uh, had it not been for Anita, and as you know, her open records request, and it was kind of funny you know i got this random call from this lady i'd never met and we lived two blocks away from each other and that was to be honest that was why she called me she Mm -hmm. said one of my one of my neighbors is on this list uh and so she called me and said i know this is going to feel the left field i'm not trying to sell you anything i'm just curious and she explained the background of cross check Mm -hmm. and how my name was 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 flagged as a possible double voter in kansas and florida and I, I just said to her, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't even know what cross-check was, Sherman. And so I started to read into it. And then I started, like her, I started to get angry about it because I, I'd heard a lot of the Kobach, uh, you know, hot air. I mean, my dad is Dennis Moore, the former congressman. So mm-hmm. I got to see for, for that one election cycle when Kobach ran against him. And, and he, if you recall that, that was his largest victory ever. I mean, it was a landslide for a Democrat because he was running against Kobach. So I knew who he was when he did, back then he was more, uh, you know, angry about, uh, you know, more congressional type issues. He did talk about voting, voting and all, but once he became secretary of state, I think he felt empowered that this was his, his mission. 
And uh, yeah, when I when I started to find out that Kansas was leading the the collection of states of up to thirty states, and that we were running the program, his office, the more I looked into it, the angrier I got. And, and, and you know, yes, I was angry about my name being on there, but I was more along with Anita and the ACLU. I was more interested in, in stopping that program and, and using a program that actually used analytics and worked. And not not the, the ratios you just mentioned to me with the Jesse Richmond study, so uh, our quote unquote study. <laughs> so yeah, that was uh, that was how I found out about that. Anita just called me up one day and said, "Did you know you're on this list and that your information's being shipped around on email uh, to find out if you're a dual voter?" And I, I had no idea. <laughs> Stephen become the the namesake of the the lawsuit that eventually brings Crosscheck down. I, was there any hesitation from you to do that? Did you feel like you had a responsibility oh, to do that? A little bit. I talked to the ACLU. Um, I, I didn't know if I really wanted to be the the name on it. And uh, Lauren Bonds over there uh, said, "Why don't you come over and we'll talk about it." And, Back in the days when you could actually drive over to meet with people in person, you know, so long ago. <laughs> yeah, two years ago. Uh, turned, yeah, <laughs> turned out the ACLU was just a couple miles from my house, so I drove over there and met with her, and I met with Mark. And, you know, the more we talked about it, they said, look, you know, we, we were not going to try to go round up the class of 950-some, I think it was 947 voters. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got you and two others, and, you know, they don't care, but we'd like to put your name on it. You're, you're, you're right in our backyard. So the more I talked about it, the more I said, okay, I'll do it. Uh, I didn't really know what that entailed, and they said, well, you know, we'd like you to go to a press conference, and we're going to announce the lawsuit on the steps of the uh, Jack of the, uh, sorry, Wyandotte County Courthouse, and then we'll. And that's the picture on my Twitter feed, if you've seen that. And then I, and then they said, they said you might have to go to trial, but we don't think this will go to trial. But you know, you, you could be called to testify and all of that. And I said that's fine. I grew up, and my dad was an attorney before he was a congressman, so I've been around court. Houses, and that's why they kind of said, you know, you, you, we don't say that you'll be intimidated by the spotlight, and that Kobach might come out, you know, uh, blasting. Uh, you know, he's certainly not as bad as Trump as far as you know on Twitter for every day, mm -hmm. name calling and think, bullying people. But they said Kobach will probably come out, and 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 he'll he'll probably be more angry and defiant at the ACLU than you in person. So I told him that was fine. I said, oh, you can put my name on it. And it, it was kind of, it, when I heard them announce Moore versus Kobach, it, like I said, it kind, of, it kind of harkened back to my dad running against him. But then it was also, I just said, you know, this is, this is the right thing to do. I, I, was, I was never in it for any kind of personal gain. Um, but, I, but I thought it was the right thing to do because, to be honest, I, I wanted cross-check shut down. Did uh, did you ever find yourself in you know being personally attacked by Kobach or his supporters over this? No, not really. I mean, if you if you really scoured the internet, you could find some random blog post and some you know it's just kind of like Twitter now. Hmm. Uh, Twitter, I wasn't as active back then on Twitter, and I you'd see a couple people like the bot type people just come in and say, Oh, this is on. But I, I don't, I ignore all that. That doesn't bother me. Um, no, nobody called my house. Nobody came looking for me or anything like that. So, and then again, I've never, I haven't talked to secretary Kobach 
I think I said hi to him. I said, I said hello to him back in the election he ran against my dad. That's probably the only time I've ever seen him in person. And I, well, I take it back. I've seen him in a couple parades and stuff up there on a car with his machine gun. But, uh, but you know, that, that's about it. I've never, like, sat down and talked with him. So His, his Jeep with the, the very yeah. real gun that they said was fake. Yes, yes. The uh, AR-15 or whatever the heck that thing was. and uh, they, they just yeah. decided it as being fake, but I, I found out later yeah. that they all they did was took the firing pin out of a real gun. Yeah. And, and, you know, at the time, too, there was this, there was the cross-check specter, and then there was also hanging over us with that he was running for governor. And, mm-hmm. and I can't remember when I first started if he had already announced that it was commonly known he was going to run against Governor Kelly. And that horrified me. I, we had just come off the Brownback, in my opinion, debacle. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not a left-wing liberal. I'm pretty moderate. And I, you know, I'm like most folks that I live around. We care about our schools. We care about our public safety and our streets. And, uh, you know, I just sat here and, and watched what Brownback did. And, uh, I thought Kobach's going to be worse, uh, on the budget side. And then, then think about how empowered he's going to feel about, about continuing to hunt down these, these rogue voters. And, and, uh, it was, it was terrifying. So I, uh, back to, you know, when, when, it, when Lauren Bonds called me, Sherman, I, I really felt like I had to do something about it. Um, I was in a position to do something. You know, he had Anita who was over there, you know, blogging about it and writing about it and talking about it. And she, you know, she wanted to do something. So she was kind of saying to me, it would be great if, you know, I don't want you to feel any pressure, but it'd be great if you would step forward because that, uh, she wanted this thing stopped, as you know, uh, very, she was very passionate about that. And, as I grew, over time grew, I, I felt at least at least in the same vicinity of her. I don't know that anyone's more passionate than her about it, but I, I felt pretty pretty darn uh, pretty darn uh, convicted to help out. You know, it felt like part of the justification for using cross checks so vigorously was they were they were looking at sometimes literally looking for what they referred to as foreign sounding names that they were trying to find. Yeah. You know, trying to prove that there were uh, Hispanic voters uh, who were not citizens, and you're obviously very white and very much a, a citizen. Yeah. Does it strike you as ironic that you would be the kind of person who gets caught up in this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, I've lived in Kansas all but two years of my life. Uh, and, and, and I've lived within the same, I don't know, five miles of where I grew up. Uh, you know, went to Shawnee Mission East. I, I lived in Missouri for two years and then moved back to Kansas. Uh, you know, dad was a former Johnson County district attorney, congressman. So yeah, it was a little bit ironic that I was flagged. And, and like you said, a first and last, uh, one syllable first and last name, Scott Moore, who could, must be the same Scott Moore down in Florida who is, who is voting down there. Okay. You know, and of course, first thing they ask me, have you ever lived in Florida? I'm like, no, I visited Florida. I, I don't own a timeshare there. I mean, there's no there's no way I could be tied to voting in Florida other than a, a, a fairly common name, Scott Moore. Of course, there's a Scott Moore down there. Hmm. And I guess the person, from what I can found, had the same birth date, but still. And, you know, there's got to be tens of thousands of Scott Moores, and, and several of them share the same birth date. And so, you know, Kobach's view is, well, then let's look at the last four of the Social Security, and then that'll that'll eliminate him. And so, you know, here we are spending cycles on that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, I'm with you, uh, Sherman. What they really were trying to find was a lot of P. 
people crossing the border illegally, coming all the way to Kansas, you know, where it was such a huge issue, and I'm being facetious, of course, mm-hmm. and then trying to vote here, you know, for Hillary Clinton. So that, that's what that's what it seemed like, uh, you know, yes, that's what it appeared to me that he was really after. Uh, I never understood how border security in Kansas was such a major issue that he ran on that, and then, of course, the, the voting rights, uh, mm-hmm. he kind of picked up as, as almost a natural extension of that for him. There was a, a, a great moment during the trial when they were grilling one of these guys who had been scouring lists for foreign-sounding names, and and Dale Ho was kind of giving examples yeah. like, would this be an enemy? And they gave the, the example of an actual judge in the courts. Of course, he's not a judge anymore, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's it just kind of punctuated how silly all of this was. Yeah, Dale, Dale Ho has become uh, one of my Twitter heroes. I, I love seeing his tweets and just and watching what he's been doing, so it's great. Has uh, has all this changed your life in any meaningful way, other than reporters like me calling you up every now and then? No, not really. Uh, I did have a few friends. So uh, so Dana Wright, you know, here on uh, in town, who does the 98 uh, Z uh, talk show every afternoon. She's a personal friend, and she, I sent her. Uh, I sent her. She she just she she's always on Twitter talking about how she just can't, cannot stand Chris Kovach. So one day I said, Hey Dana, you'll be happy to know that I'm suing him. And she thought I was joking. I said, No, I'm dead serious. This is a federal lawsuit. I sent her the details. She said, I want you to come on my show. I, I can't. I want to. I want to learn more about this. So I did. And that was probably the most where I had a lot of people coming up to me like, I just heard you on Scott and Dana's show. And I said, yeah. They're like, that was you, right? I'm like, yeah, it was me. And this was never my intention to be the guy carrying the flag here, me and the other two uh, plaintiffs, along with, you know, the ACLU and Anita and other folks like that. So uh, it was more... uh, I mean, again, and then I had a couple of people say, I hope you sue him for everything he's worth. And I'm like, well, that's nice of you to say. We're not really suing for money. Um, <laughs> it's not quite how we it are, works. We are, yeah, we are limited to $1,000 each in damages. So the most Kobach could lose and then the, and the Secretary of State's office could lose is $3,000 for me, the other two plaintiffs, plus anyone else who signed up for the class. But I said, I told him, I said, if I if I ever get a check for $1,000, I'll donate it to the ACLU. I, I, told, I told Laura that. I said, I'll you you have my word, and of course, when uh, when Secretary Schwab took over the case, uh, it did not get resolved before Kobach left office, and as you saw, left a thousand rounds of ammunition in his office and all the other ridiculous things. It just with Kobach, you feel like every day you feel like the story is kind of like Trump. You feel like they can't even be true, yet they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Secretary Schwab was when you and I first kind of came in contact uh, indirectly. Was when he. Uh, To be honest, I thought, you know, I I knew who he was here in town, here in the Kansas City area. I certainly knew about his son and the tragedy there. And uh, I just thought he would amicably amicably try to resolve this. And instead, he came out swinging and was very angry and (laughs) accused the ACLU of trying to make money off of this. And as you probably saw, Sherman, I think the ACLU got about $8,000, somewhere in that range, for for their attorney's costs. And Lauren and I were talking, Lauren spent, her and her staff spent way many more hours than that. And she said, that's fine. And I said, well, congratulations. I'm not getting my $1,000. He negotiated that out. And I said, that's fine. I would have gone to you anyway. So, yeah, this was never about money. It was never about, you know, me trying to get any personal gain or limelight or anything. It it literally was about ending cross-check. 
The Brennan Center for Justice in recent years has worked to correct myths about voter fraud. For example, it reviewed the Heritage Foundation's database of 1,100 instances of voter fraud and found it really only contains 10 examples of in-person voter impersonation and 41 cases of non-citizens voting. Those cases date back to 1988, a period that includes more than 3 billion votes. Here's Sean Morales-Doyle on how the Brennan Center pushes back on false claims. All of the research on voter fraud um, has shown time and time again, no matter who's doing it, that um, cases of of what um, politicians are referring to when they talk about voter fraud um, are incredibly rare um, to the point of, um, you know, I, I suppose there is an infinitesimal rate of um, voter fraud and so when that rhetoric that this is some sort of rampant problem that we need to be worried about is used um, without any evidence to back it up um, you know it raises the question of why it's being used and it is almost always used to justify some sort of policy that um, ends up making it more difficult for folks to vote and so I think it's it's quite clear that this rhetoric of, of, of this myth of rampant voter fraud uh, is being propagated with the um, intention of passing um, voter uh, unfriendly policies, mm-hmm. policies that are unfriendly to voters, um, and making it more difficult for people to vote. Um, it's a it's a solution in search of a problem um, when when legis- state legislatures pass very restrictive voter ID laws or other sorts of things like that. The ACLU Kobach trial has dealt with the proof of citizenship requirement. We, we have the, the voter ID law, the signature matching on ballots, and um, kind of the, the use of the cross-check system to find double voters. Are there other types of laws like this? Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, the, perhaps the ones that we've seen most prominently have been the, the one that may be caught on the most is restrictive voter ID laws. Uh, I think there are the no-match-no-vote laws and the proof-of-citizenship laws as well. Um, there are attempts at, and, and this is something that Chris Kobach was very involved in, uh, attempts at creating um, more aggressive voterless maintenance practices, basically voter purging, um, you know, through the use of things like cross-check, but um, more aggressively removing voters for the role, from the rolls. Um, there have been a number of states that have passed laws to do that, some of which have been stopped by lawsuits, like a law in Indiana, um, and in large, large part cross-check sort of, uh, cross-check's not really in, it does no longer functions, so there have been, um, you know, ways that that has been curtailed, but there have been a number of states that have stepped up the aggressive purging of voters. Um, there have been laws that have passed, and, and a law that has been upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in Ohio that essentially start the process of purging voters simply for voters who, uh, because voters don't vote for a certain amount of, amount of time, uh, mm-hmm. people call it like a use it or lose it um, kind of uh, policy. Um, and now in the 2020 election, what we're seeing is a 
concerted effort to make voting by mail more difficult. Um, and again, the the rhetoric used to justify the restrictions on voting by mail has been um, you know, false rhetoric about the prevalence of voter fraud. In some of these cases, at least, it seems like there's a a race baiting kind of feel to it. Sometimes more obvious than others. Is that a common theme that you would see as well? Absolutely. I think um, the both the rhetoric, the the myth that's being um, that's being spread, um, and the policies that it's being used to justify. Um, are you know the the racial element is obvious the the myth is often playing up on people's fears um, uh, xenophobia and racism um, that people have so you know when the president made his claim about um, you know the the his popular vote loss being based on uh, being a result of non citizens voting. Uh, you know, within the context of everything else that President Trump has done to um, demonize and criminalize um, and um, denigrate certain immigrant groups um, and how racialized that has been since before he ran for president, when he began running for president, um, I think it's, you know, the with that context, it's pretty clear what he's alluding to when he talks about um, this made up millions of non-citizen voters. Um, and I also think that whenever um, whenever the rhetoric of, of voter fraud or like people, you know, coming to attack our elections, our, our system of democracy, um, whenever that rhetoric is used, it's, it's appealing to people's fears about who is trying to get in the way of their interests and who's, you know, trying to corrupt their elections. And so it plays on um, it plays on people's xenophobia and fears that's already existing. But it's also telling that these um, this rhetoric is used to justify policies that are themselves discriminatory. Um, and that have a disparate impact on the votes of people of color. So voter ID laws tend to make it harder for people of color to vote and white people to vote. Um, and that is a trend throughout these um, these restrictive policies. And, you know, the proof of citizenship laws are just an even more obvious, um, there's an even more obvious connection to race there. Again, um, obviously there are immigrants of all races in the United States, but the anti-immigrant sentiment is that those laws are appealing to is a very racialized anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, and I remember in testimony at having to look up what what a professional ethnic meant. I'd never heard that term before. Also, there's a lot of uh, testimony about actually looking for people with what they refer to as foreign-sounding names. So yeah. it was very deliberate in, in the proof of citizenship realm. Yeah, and I think there there are other policies in terms of um, mismatches and, and um, you know matching voter names when you're doing purge practices that can sometimes end up having a disparate impact on people with certain surnames. Um, so you know I don't know what the last name Morales Doyle signals to people, but you you um, <laughs> you can I, I sort of assume one of my last names gives. Uh, 
folks pushing for these laws more concerned than the other one. How long have you been focused on this issue? If you can give a little bit of your background. Sure. Um, I'm, I've been at the Brennan Center for Justice uh, since the beginning of 2018. So uh, myself personally, I've been working on this issue since then. I, I mean, I've been a civil rights lawyer for much longer than that, but my focus was not um, entirely on voting rights before 2018. Um, the Brennan Center, of course, has been working on this issue for um, much longer than that um, and has been uh, combating this myth of um, rampant voter fraud for probably the better part of a decade now, if not longer. Yeah. What do you do these days to kind of push back on that narrative? Well, um, you know, it's interesting. It's we have this we have a concern sort of about repeating the lie on this right um mm -hmm. there's been some research that suggests that like the more you say voter fraud the more people believe the myth um and so even even when you're just saying there's not a problem with rampant voter fraud you're kind of um just you know keeping it out there in the world and so um sometimes we try to avoid talking about it in order to not um perpetuate it um and instead focus on um, on the policy that is, um, you know, focus on trying to pass good policies and fight bad policies. But a lot of what we've done is try to talk to folks like you and talk to journalists, um, talk to legislators, talk to, um, to people who have an impact on policy um, to at least try to debunk the myth in those um, contexts so that, you know, when someone makes some errant claim, uh, some crazy claim about some massive amount of, you know, non-citizens on the rolls or something like that, that the immediate response is one of skepticism and not, um, you know, one of um, fear or trying to figure out who's telling the truth or whatever else, um, that, that those kinds of crazy claims are immediately challenged as being facially um, suspect rather than um, given their, given the time to fester, I suppose. Um, but we've done, you know, we've done research. Uh, we've, for instance, a while back, one of my colleagues put out a, an analysis of the Heritage uh, Fraud Database, where they, you know, created this database they claim that showed all these instances of voter fraud and mm -hmm. sort of went through them systematically to show, you know, how little that database actually does demonstrate um, and that it actually shows that there's, you know, this is a vanishingly rare phenomenon. I was looking at uh, that the other day, like a few yeah. dozen dating back to the 80s. Yeah, exactly. um, Some of what we do is try to distinguish between these different concepts. So, you know, we do occasionally see bad actors in the political, uh, in the political arena doing things they shouldn't be doing in elections, right? And we saw this example in North Carolina of a congressional campaign interfering with people's absentee ballots in a way that is entirely inappropriate and, and I will note was caught and um, prosecuted, but um, which is usually the case, but is is sort of uh, substantively different than what than the concept of what is being um, described when people talk about voter fraud and, and being used to justify things like voter ID, um, you know, that what is incredibly rare is an individual voter deciding to go to the polls and pretend to be somebody else or try to mail in a ballot for someone other than themselves. 
there's sometimes political actors doing inappropriate things in the in, in order to interfere with people's votes, and that's a, a fundamentally different idea um, than someone trying to impersonate another voter at the polls. And so we we also um, want to make clear, you know, those delineations so people don't use, you know, a story about one thing to justify a policy that's really aimed at the other. Um, and then this year, a lot of work, we're doing a whole lot of work to try to ensure that we have um, safe and fair elections during a pandemic, and a lot of that has meant um, talking about the importance of voting by mail and, again, trying not to engage too much with the nonsense arguments about how voting by mail is rife with fraud, um, but instead um, talk about the importance of voting by mail, how safe and reliable and um, and well-established voting by mail is around the country, um, and, and then when necessary, respond to the, the myths about the problems with it. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is, uh, on what we do, I think, is sort of trying to shift the concern that people have, legitimate concern that voters have about problems with our elections and the way our democracy functions, um, away from these myths um, where the focus is on, you know, in-person voter fraud or mail voter fraud, and instead shift it to um, the real problems that we're facing with having um, a presidential election during a pandemic, uh, with, you know, all kinds of policies aimed at voter suppression, um, with partisan gerrymandering, with you know all these things that that we see happening, um, and I and I think we've had a great deal of success in that, and I think that um, a lot of the laws that have been passed around the country um, to deal with those problems, and a lot of the ballot initiatives as we, we've seen passed in recent years have shown that you know th this voter fraud rhetoric was really powerful and it was you know used very well by those seeking to restrict democracy to uh, justify restrictive policies like voter ID laws. Um, and there was really a trend of that for some time. I think in recent years, we've seen a countervailing trend of pro-democracy reform, both in state legislatures and among voters themselves through ballot initiatives. Um, we've seen uh, Congress embrace democracy reform as the, the number one priority in the House uh, with the introduction and passage of HR1 last year. Um, so I, I think we've seen a tide shift to your, to your um, framing point at the beginning about how the battlegrounds have shifted or battle lines have shifted. Uh, I think there really has been a change in the last few years in um, both how much people believe this myth, but even if that hasn't changed that much, um, the focus, um, the legitimate concern about voting rights and about elections has grown, but it's shifted to... Um, you know, trying to create a more expansive and fairer democracy, uh, and so that's been really encouraging. Uh, unfortunately, there's been sort of a there's sort of a split in the country. There are states that are going one way and states that are going the other way, and so mm -hmm. it's a positive trend that there are some states going the other way now. There's some states trying to pass good, expansive laws, um, but of course that hasn't happened everywhere, and so we're sort of seeing a divide here um, geographically in terms of um, state by state whether whether states are becoming more um, democratic or, or restricting the right to vote more and more. That's it for this week's episode. I want to thank my guests, Scott Moore and Sean Morales-Doyle. And thanks for listening. 